Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is Mr. David Burkus, who is a best-selling author and associate professor of leadership and innovation at Oral Roberts University. His upcoming book, Friend of a Friend, offers readers a new perspective on how to grow their networks and build key connections, one based on the science of human behavior, not not rote networking advice, which I'm sure none of us wanted to listen to. (laughs) So I'm glad we're not going to be talking about that. Uh, He's delivered keynotes to the leaders of Fortune 500 companies and the future leaders of the United States Naval Academy. His TED Talk has been viewed over two million times, and he is a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review. So today we're going to dive into a whole uh, bunch of topics, but all surrounding your community, your social capital and social currency. And we are going to unpack uh, a a good amount about networks. So because David is really an expert and an influencer when it comes to uh, networks, when it comes to human behavior, and when it comes specifically to social psychology, we are going to talk about how you can start to utilize the network that you already have start to give back to it, start to uh, in, invest in the social capital uh, within your current network and how to develop and how to reach outside of the network that you already have uh, into new and exciting networks. So this is a really cool topic and is actually something that I've been wanting to address and talk about for a while. We also dive into the impact of social networks. So platforms like Facebook, LinkedIn, et cetera, and talk about not only impact of some of these networks, but how to utilize them properly and how most people actually get it wrong, uh, which is really interesting. So David shares a, a whole bunch of the science of human behavior and social psychology and what's actually happening in the human brain and body when we are trying to build these connections with people. So grab a pen, grab a paper, uh, or take some notes on your phone because this is a solid episode loaded, loaded, loaded with some really great content. And just before I bring them on, I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to everybody that has been manning it forward and sharing the podcast lately. I have been getting the notifications on Instagram and on Facebook uh, and on LinkedIn where people are sharing the podcast. And I just want to say thank you Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. And you know who you are. Uh, so big shout out to all of you. And uh, don't forget to, to leave us a review. It goes such a long way uh, to getting us ranked on iTunes and Spotify and into the ears of other people. So thank you so much for tuning in today. And without further delay and further ado, please welcome Mr. David Burkus. Thank you so much for having me. Listen, man, I am super excited to get into some of this content. The, you know, the, the work that you are doing in the world is, is actually really fascinating to me. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is because I feel like this is very applicable for a lot of our audience. So I'm, I'm excited to get in, uh, but I need to ask you the, the question that I ask all of our guests because they, they wait for it. Uh, but tell me a story about a defining moment that has made you who you are today? Oh, the the question, pressure's on, the right? Question. So like, if, if we don't like the answer, all the listeners are going to like tune out. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you one that's it's actually, uh, it's an interesting story. It's one that's in none of my books. Uh, I usually don't write about myself in general, but it's also one that kind of, it's one of those defining moments. You know how you never remember defining moments till after, like long after you're like, oh yeah, I guess I could see that. 
Um, it actually goes all the way back into high school. So I had an interesting thing happen in high school, which is that I transferred schools midway through. And that that normally works fine uh, for most people. But in ours, because I was moving from a charter school to a public school, the the curriculum was a little different. And I found myself in a geometry class when I had taken geometry before, but I hadn't taken algebra. And we're up in the class and the, the teacher is, assumes a bunch of stuff because all of the kids in that high school had normally taken algebra first. So she's doing a bunch of equations on the board. I don't even, truthfully, I haven't done algebra in like 10 years. So I don't actually know exactly what she's doing anymore. I should probably email her. Uh, and she's doing that thing where you move a number from one side of the equation to the other in order to like isolate the variable. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, I have no idea what just happened. Like, I don't get how you can do that, whatever. And I just sat there quietly, like stunned and, and thinking, oh, this is awful because I'm in over my head, blah, 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 blah. And I came up to her afterwards and, and I explained that to her. And then I was like, I've never, and she's like, well, you're supposed to have learned this in algebra last year. I'm like, I didn't take algebra last year because I was in this other school. And she goes, well, you have, you have two options. She's like, you can just drop back and take the class years, you know, and be a year behind in math and then hopefully catch up in summer school or whatever. She goes, or... I can give you that textbook and you can study it and learn it on your own. And you can come to me with questions and, you know, I'll meet with you after class like once a week or whatever to help you out. And so I taught myself algebra throughout that semester while learning geometry again, because I had to be in the class. Um, I taught myself how to do algebra. Next, next year came around, we did algebra two and got like a 93. So I think I did pretty good. But the, the real lesson, the thing that I took home from that was that was the first time uh, that, that the world sort of served me an opportunity to learn two really important lessons. The first being that you can do anything you want to do in life if you put in the work. You can learn whatever you want to learn if you put in the work. And this is the second thing, if you find the right people to help you, right? So I would have never been able to teach myself algebra. What I found was a public school teacher who was willing to actually go, okay, yeah, let's do this. Let's all invest the time in you, et cetera. So you can do anything you want in the world if you put in the work, but also if you find the right people around you. Now, what I think is interesting about that is that, you know, 16 year old me would have no idea that almost two decades later, I'm writing a book about networks, relationships, connections, all of that kind of a thing. But it seems appropriate because that was my initial exposure to just how powerful finding the right people to be around is. Yeah, I, that's, that's such an incredible story, man. I mean, I think about myself at that age and um, I'm not too sure how I would have handled that. First and foremost, because math was like my my weak point. So I wasn't exactly an algebra person to begin with. But uh, it, it's really interesting that those those types of situations where we're sort of thrust into them really start to define who we are. So how do you feel like that sort of shaped you mentally and emotionally, especially when it came to actually facing obstacles in your life? Because it sounds like it was pretty formative. Yeah, no, totally. And, th and that was the time that I mean, that was the first time I had done it. And it felt like I it felt like I learned a cheat code, right, that other people like can help you figure this out faster, right. So I look back through the rest of my life, and every attempt to accomplish something usually starts with the question of, okay, who are the right people that I need in this? Sometimes I know them other times I the first step in trying to achieve something is going and finding the people who can help you. And it really is when you, when you do it right, I, I look back and it's like, yeah, I, I found the cheat codes to life. It's called other people. <laughs> I like that. I like that, man. And I think the, the interesting thing is, is that we all sort of uh, subjectively, like we, we, we are aware that our networks and the people that we surround ourselves with are incredibly important. But I think that we often undervalue how important they actually are. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on here today is to actually start to unpack, you know, why are 
our network so important first and foremost and and how do we start to actually cultivate this this social capital so so why don't we just start with with what are some of the myths that you've seen over the years when it comes to building to building social networks yeah so i mean probably the biggest myth or or misconceptions around networks is it's a very simple just sort of like that that bigger is better right i mean really there's a there's a mental model that goes with bigger is better where when when i even say networking to most people what most people think is that's about meeting more people, meeting new people, adding more contacts to your LinkedIn, adding more email addresses in your address book on your computer, right? It's about more, 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 more turning strangers into new contacts. And the truth is, and everything I've found is that the the right approach is actually to have a different mental model of what even networking means. It's not about meeting total strangers and adding them to some, you know, vanity metric of contacts. It's about understanding that you already exist inside of a network. There's there's the larger network, 7.4 billion people and counting. But then even in inside of that, you're in a little corner of that larger network around where your geography is, your job, et cetera. You, you have that. If we draw you in the center, you create a network too. And the best approach is to think that it's not that I have a network, I'm inside of one. And then un- understanding it as the sort of three-dimensional object that it is and acting accordingly. And sometimes that means meeting new strangers. A lot of times it means paying more attention to the people that you've let your relationship with fall by the wayside. And a lot of times it also means figuring out who's one or two degrees of separation out from you that you can get access to. And, and when you do all of that, what I think is really cool is you also never have to go to a networking mixer thing ever again, because the goal isn't to meet total strangers and add them to contacts. The goal is to figure out where am I in the network? What do I need from that network? And what does that network need from me? And those are not only more valuable questions, they're more fun. Yeah, I was going to say now, now you're speaking my language to never have to go to a networking mixer ever again. <laughs> I know, right? I know. I think, I think I'm like, I'm one of those people that has avoided that. Like, like it's amazing that I've run event businesses because I avoid like large groups, like the plague, you know, for whatever reason. But, and, and yet I've, I've managed to like create these spaces of connection and community. So, so why, why don't we do this? I would love to actually have you just unpack. Uh, you know, you've kind of defined a little bit about what a network actually is and the fact that we're already in a network. But how do we start to, un, uh, you know, define whether or not we're in the right network for our own circumstances and where we want to take our life? Because I think that sometimes this is where people really go sort of uh, arise, that they are wanting to take their life in a very certain direction. They want to reach these goals. They have ambitions. Uh, and yet they seem to be surrounded by the the quote unquote wrong people, or, or at least the people that that don't necessarily have the tools to get them where they want to go. Right, right. No, totally. So, so there's, there's two steps, really. The, the first is actually figuring out that your network is probably bigger than what you think it is, right? We tend to only count, we, we, we use this term in the subtitle, the hidden network, because we tend to only count when we say your network, the people that you feel like you have a close enough relationship in the here and now to ask something, you know, ask something from, uh, to have a conversation with, to, you know, pick up the phone and chat with, to attend an event with, to go to dinner with, whatever it is. But we, we only pay attention to those close knit people. And like you said, a lot of times those close knit people are the wrong people, either because they're the wrong influence on us, which is a huge dilemma, or even if they're a positive influence, if we're wanting to go in a certain direction that involves acquiring new skills, learning new knowledge, meeting new people, et cetera, the people who are close to us in the network are usually people who are exactly like us, right? There's, there's a reason for that. We like being around people who think like us, right? Because if they think like us, clearly they're brilliant, right? 
but we, we like being around those people. And so the, the result is that the sociologist Ronald Burt, who is also one of the people that helped coin the term social capital, he uses this term called redundancy. And I love that idea that like, you, you know, your friends are important. Your close knit connections are important. They're fun. They, they provide great sort of hangout time, quality conversations, but in terms of new information, new skills, et cetera, they're redundant. If you're all in that same circle together, you all kind of all know the same people and the same things. And what you need is to figure out, okay, how do I get, how do I draw a path to the people that I need to add to my network in order to learn those things. And so you're probably already ignoring two sections of your network. The first is that I've sort of hinted at it earlier, what we call weak ties or dormant ties. These are the people that you're connected with, weak ties you're connected with, and you know they're not friend of a friend. That's a whole other thing. We'll get to it. But their weak ties are people you know, um, but you don't know that well. And dormant ties are a little bit different. They're ties that you knew really well, but for some reason or another, it fell by the wayside, right? You moved cities or you changed jobs or whatever, and now you're not talking to those people as often. Now, why these people are so important is they exist usually somewhere else in the network that's not close to you, which means they have access to information you don't have access to. They have access to potential introductions that you don't have access to. They, they're they existing in a cluster that's different from yours, and it might be the one that you need. So filling out these and making it a point to kind of reconnect with these is, is step one. Step two is now you're reconnecting with weak ties and dormant ties, and now you need to know who is the friend of a friend, who's one degree of separation out from you. So all of the research on that six degrees of separation or six degrees of Kevin Bacon, depending on where you read it, is actually fairly accurate. We're all connected, far more connected than we know. But what's exciting to me is the almost exponential number of people that are one introduction away from you. And we know this because occasionally, you know, maybe the next to being at that networking mixer, the second most awkward thing for most people to do is ask for an introduction to a specific person, which is awkward, but it's also sort of the wrong approach. What we need to be doing is asking lots of people, hey, who do you know in blank with blank being whatever that community you want to get attached to is, whatever that source of knowledge is, et cetera, right? You know, if, 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 let's say you're moving from one city to another, not, not that you're ever experienced moving from one city to another, but if you're doing that, right, what's you, you instinctively ask the right question, which is who do I know in that new city, right? And who do they know in that new city so I can get connected? But when we think about professional introductions, we usually like, we get in this weird mode where we like LinkedIn stalk people to figure out who they can introduce us to. And then we ask for that specific introduction, which is also asking for someone to vouch for us and they might not be ready for it, et cetera. So taking that more open-ended question to just explore who's at the fringes of my network is a huge step to finding those people. And then because somebody offered up, hey, I know this person in this city, we're much more likely to get the introduction in a much less awkward way. So two steps, one, weak ties, dormant ties, reconnecting with them, making it a habit to keep checking in with them. And two, exploring the fringes of the network by asking, who do you know in blank? so that we can figure out who is one degree of separation, who's the friend of a friend that we need to become our friend. Mm, yeah, that's really solid, man. Really solid. I mean, it's it's kind of funny you're talking about moving cities, which is, you know, part of what I've been going through for like the last year. <laughs> putting my yeah, I didn't know how public you were with it, right? No, but no. I'm thinking of it immediately. I think, so I'm like, yeah, this is exactly what he has to do. I think people that, you know, people that have sort of followed along with with my journey and, and uh, people in our community have sort of seen me, you know, traveling all over the United States in like the last two years as we launched Man Talks in different cities and, and specifically in the last year, bouncing back and forth between Vancouver and New York. 
And it really has been an interesting journey. And, and even when I think about when re people have reached out to me who I don't really know, and they've done that sort of LinkedIn stalking that you've talked about, and they're like, hey, can you intro me to so-and-so? And I have no idea who they are and why they really <laughs> want the intro. I'm like, no, like, why would I intro? I have no idea who you are, and I, I can't really vouch for you, but you're, you're essentially asking for me to vouch for you. And so there is such a huge difference between being able to stay connected with people, even if it's just, you know, connecting with them once every, you know, four or five months and checking in with them and seeing how they're doing and how you might be able to support them. Uh, and, and then sort of not leveraging those ties, but, but knowing that that is a part of your network versus almost like the, the cold message, the cold call out through LinkedIn to actually, to actually do that. And, uh, just like a random note, cause I don't know if you know this or not. And I would, I've always been curious about this. I have always wondered how many people actually try to leverage their networks to get in touch with Kevin Bacon. Like, is, do you know if there's any <laughs> research out there around that? Because in like the first thing that I've always thought around like the six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon is like, I wonder how many calls I'd have to make to actually get put in touch with Kevin Bacon to have him on the show. And like, so is there anything, do you know of any research out there of that? <laughs> So, I mean, you, you specifically, I could, I mean, you could probably so there, figure it out. So there's an interesting, there's a, a website called the Oracle of Kevin Bacon, right? <laughs> Where you, no, I'm serious. So you can plug in any actor, actress, director, producer, et cetera, anyone who has a credit in IMDb, because it's funnel, it's fueled by IMDb. You can plug them in and then you could do a couple different things. You can either see how many steps it takes to connect them to Kevin Bacon or you can connect that you can type in a second actor, actress, producer, director's name and see how they connect to each other through Kevin Bacon. It's a really so. But but here's the here's the interesting thing about it. Right. And we talk about this in Friend of a Friend. There's actually nothing special about Kevin Bacon. In fact, if you look at like the most connected, the most well-known, um, not, not well-known, but the most the people who've been in the most films with the most amount of other people, he ranks like 667th. He's not actually all that high up there. It's a it's a total statistical fluke. It basically happened because three college kids who were probably inebriated were watching a bunch of movies back to back to back. And Kevin Bacon was in all of them. So then they sort of started wondering and they found this thing. But like, had they been watching action films, we could be talking about the six degrees of Chuck Norris, right? <laughs> so it's, it's total statistical fluke. What to me that that's actually good news, right? That there's nothing special about Kevin Bacon, which means Almost all of us are that way. I mean, you can literally, you can take the network of Hollywood and you can connect anybody to anybody else in less than six steps. It's not just Kevin Bacon. And in our larger kind of network of the entire world, 7.4 billion people, we're almost as connected and it doesn't require one specific person to be that linchpin. Um, it's actually far more connected than you know. So, so yes, there's a tool that you could probably use if you have any friends in Hollywood to then figure out how many steps they are away and then you'd know your steps. But the more important lesson is that you don't need Kevin Bacon at all to find the person that you want to find. Man, oh man, you just blew my mind and made my day all at the same time because I know what I'm doing directly after this. I'm going to see how far away I am from Kevin Bacon and finally, <laughs> finally get the answer to my question. Uh, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm not, I'm, actually, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to go find out. Um, but just on a more serious note, I am, I am a little bit curious 
uh, as the you know to the impact of some of like these social platforms and how they have affected neurologically or behaviorally our ability to build connections because something that i have seen especially within you know guys within men because this is you know we have a large uh, masculine pop- population in in this community is that the the more social platforms that guys seem to be on and i know i'm not too sure if this is true for women but the more social platforms that guys seem to be on the more the more that they're active on those the more challenging and the the tougher time they seem to have at building real life connections and so there seems to be this like strange uh social ineptitude that pops up when we are more active on social platforms. And so I'm curious to get your insight. Like, have we gone wrong in some way in the past decade or so in terms of networking and in, in terms of building our social circles? And and what have you seen as the impact uh, on us as maybe a species or, or even a gender, if you've noticed something in that area? So, I mean, your, your uh, experience is in line with most of the research. So there's a lot of studies that show that actually the more frequently you're lo- using online social media tools, uh, the lonelier you actually feel. And the study started out with teenagers, but they've been replicated in adults, that there's sort of this correlation that um, if you are spending a bunch of time, you know, with pixelated versions of people instead of real versions of people, you're more likely to report sort of being lonely. The The bigger problem is, I mean, it's an amazing, social media is an amazing tool because it actually increases how easy it is to get connected to other people. Like I'll give you this interesting stat. So most of the studies that show six degrees of separation as a real phenomenon got replicated by Facebook, by Facebook research. And if you have a Facebook account, it's actually not six degrees, it's four point like two. So it's, you we're much of those, those 2 billion people who are connected, who, are, who have a Facebook account are more connected to each other than the rest of the world, which is awesome. You'd think that would mean it's all of this stuff is so much easier. The problems are that digital is not a replacement for uh, in-person. This is why actually events like the Man Talks events are so important because um, digital is not a replacement. They're a great starting point. But unless that relationship moves from online to offline to real world, it doesn't really have that same value to us either emotionally, but also, I mean, really from a social capital standpoint, it doesn't either. The other reason is that in, later in, in Friend of a Friend, we talk about this principle of homophily, which is love of same, which is this idea that we tend to cluster around people who are similar to us. And, and homophily actually comes from two different sources. The first is that we like people who think like us, right? Because they're brilliant. But the other is that when you get too embedded in a group of people that are similar to you, all of the new connections you make usually come through those people and hence are also similar to you. And so, you know, we're, we're starting now to talk about in social media, the filter bubbles, the echo chambers, all of this stuff that's so easy because when you encounter someone who you disagree with, you can hit snooze or unfollow and you can take them out of your digital life, basically. And the people that you like, you can click like and comment and the algorithm starts serving those people to you more often. So it really sort of amps up the love of same thing. But then it also makes it more likely that any new people you're going to meet from that medium already think and act like those people that are similar to you. When in reality, you need the exact opposite. Like as humans in real world environment, we have to learn the skill of having a civil conversation with someone that you disagree with or who is different than you and has a different perspective on life. And that's a skill you don't have to master in an online world because we've got these little buttons we can push that reinforce whether or not we like you or never want to see you again. And that makes it much harder for people, especially then you migrate back into the the offline world and you're not as practiced in having that conversation. So, yeah, there's there's a ton of uh, research and, and evidence and case studies that show that 
unless you're using social media as a tool to help your existing offline social network, it's not really helping you as much as you think it is. And again, like I said before, this is why events like the Man Talks events are so important because there still is a power to being in the room with people and having those conversations in person. Mm. Yeah, very, very cool. I mean, it's it's interesting because as you were talking and you're talking about homophily, what sparked for me initially was this thought about social influencers and how social influencers seem to be like access points or magnets that draw together very similar and like-minded people. And I'm curious if you if you think that there is a way for social influencers to make sure that diversity actually happens. Because I would imagine that, you know, somebody like Gary Vee, he's got a very um, diverse following in some ways, but they're all following him for very specific reasons. And so is there is there a way that that social influencers can start to shape and, and make sure that that there is a diversity within their network, that they keep things sort of fresh and that they, you know, bring outside perspectives into that? Because I would imagine that, you know, there's a challenge there. You know, you run a podcast just like I do. And and I, I think about the content that I produce on this podcast, and I'm not too sure if this is true for you as well. But there are certain types of people, you know, men, women from different cultural backgrounds that I'll bring on the show. And every once in a while, I like to spice it up and throw somebody completely random and out of left field on there to to just try and and, and expand the envelope a little bit. So um, I know that's kind of a big question, but I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so it really depends. And, and I should say right off the bat that I only have um, – What's the fancy? I have anecdotal experimental evidence from this, meaning I don't have like good research studies on this, but I have my observations. I think it depends on the type of social influencer you are. Like someone, someone like a Gary Vee model or an Instagram celebrity, what have you, like you don't get, you don't get additional likes and follows from serving people content that challenges them. So the easiest way to do it is to just keep repeating that same message over and over and over again and collecting the million people who want to hear that message. However, that that said, there are some people that are really starting to impress me relatively recently by trying to have these sort of long form, um, more engaging conversations among different perspectives. And the, the term that I think where a lot of us are settling on to describe this community is the um, the intellectual dark web. Uh, I forget who coined that term, but it's like people like a Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan and Ben Shapiro, but also Sam Harris and Jonathan Hyde. And they're they're getting together and basically... You, what they're doing is not hosting someone they disagree with on their platform. They're sharing their platform with each other. So it's come listen to Sam Harris debate uh, Jordan Peterson, for example. And it's not a debate. It's a civil conversation. The, the trick is what's astounding to me is that you can't do that with like an Instagram post. You have to do that with a very long form conversation. So when you go search out these these dialogues from the intellectual dark web, they're they're 60 minutes, 90 minutes, two hours long sometimes. And what's amazing to me is that they're getting a following. So it is it is working, but it's more about a partnership, a deliberate partnership with people who already have attained some level of social influence by that same self message, but are now deliberately trying to partner with someone who's different and expose their two audiences to different ideas. I don't think it can be done from a one-to-one -one side of just, I have an audience and I'm going to expose my audience to this new person. I think you've got to do it that collaborative way. The other thing that it benefits is it gets the whole community having dialogues in the comments to other people in the community. So it's rare, 
but it is possible. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because the examples that you provided were, were pretty much exactly who I was thinking of. You know, somebody like Joe Rogan, his show is, is interesting in many ways because of the eclectic, you know, extremely diverse guests that he'll have on there. He'll have, have Jordan on the show. He'll have Sam Harris on the show. He'll have, you know, some random guy who's like the leader in, uh, psilocybin and, and mushrooms and psychedelics on the show. He'll have somebody, you know, from the extreme left, from the extreme right, politicians. Like, it, it's just, it's so many different uh, types of people. And so, you know, I think that that's where the inherent value is, is that these, these like you said, long-form conversations are starting to unfold. I think that people are are really sort of craving that. I think, and and correct me if I'm wrong, I'd love to get your perspective on this because some of the things that I've seen is that we sort of went through this arc in media and in marketing of having really short form clickbait crap that was just like inundating the internet. And this almost seems to be the the pendulum swinging in the other direction where people are now looking for more depth in, in the in the conversations and the content they, that they consume. So is this simply about knowing your audience and knowing what they're looking for? Or is this really like a, a social construct that's starting to emerge where where people are, are sort of tired and revolting against the the clickbait? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I there's definitely a pendulum swing. I, I don't know if it's people actively revolting against the clickbait so much as it's a function of technology, right? Like, you could only actually host a two and a half hour long YouTube stream until you know about twelve months ago. Before then, you couldn't host a, a lot of stuff. Like there, there was a time when 140 characters would still like a, a big hot topic would still like break Twitter, right? And you get the the little whale. So there was there wasn't even enough bandwidth for 140 text characters, right? And now you've got video streaming, although they still limit it to like two minutes, etc. I, so I think a lot of it was that early days of internet, the technology lent itself to those shorter conversations. Because and the reason I say that is in the text world. You always sort of saw it. You look at somebody like a Tim Ferriss and his highest performing stuff was always these 4,000 to 10,000 word articles that people will read. So I think to some extent, the, the hunger was always sort of there. The technology didn't necessarily make it available uh, until now. And unfortunately, the, the question that I have is whether or not people are trained to now act and think in those snippets and clickbaits and sound bites. Or, or not, because it's still not like, you know, you and I are both thinking of, of Joe Rogan, but there's, that's still only like, you know, a million people in his audience. There's 300 plus million in the US alone, 7.4 billion in the world. So we still have some work to do swinging that pendulum back. Mm, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I, I, I think it's, uh, it's interesting, right? Cause there's like 400,000 plus podcasts on, you know, iTunes alone. And, and a lot of that content is, is just being pumped out and produced where people are just, you know, starting up a podcast randomly and recording it in their living room and, and then sort of throwing it up on Apple and, and trying to build an audience. And it's a little bit more challenging to actually start to have these more in-depth conversations. And so I'm, I'm interested in the, you know, the changing landscape of social media. And, you know, with people jumping platforms and kind of going back and forth between LinkedIn and Facebook and, you know, they, there's a lot of people that have their hate on for Facebook right now. And so they're jumping platforms <laughs> and, you know, like to, to things like Reddit and, you know, Reddit's like, oh God, here comes the Facebook people. Uh, how can, how can we as individuals start to more effectively and efficiently leverage our networks on these social platforms, whether we are business owners, whether we are entrepreneurs, whether we're uh, personal brands, uh, how do we actually start to use these for good and, and use these to develop strong networks for ourselves? 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's important to to circle back to something I kind of left out in talking about the intellectual dark web, too, which is that these people also know each other in real life. Right. They're not just two Twitterers uh, tweeting at each other, which is a really hard sentence to say. Um, they, they know each other in real life. And it, it goes back to that thesis that the all of these tools, whichever social media you like, all of them are best serving to you if you're using them to replicate and grow your offline network, right? So it's totally cool to meet someone on one of these tools. Usually you should probably seek out like the groups of like-minded people, right? The communities that are built around certain ideas, seek them out, but they're only all that useful to you if you're going to then use them to grow your offline network, meet these people in real life, et cetera. I mean, I still have a couple people uh, in in my life that are, I've only ever sort of met them from a distance. We have phone conversations, Skype calls, all of that kind of stuff. So we know each other, but we've never met in person. That number is far more rare than the people that I have in my life that I might've met them through an online community, online forum, et cetera. But I've made a deliberate effort to try and connect with them at some period of time, meeting them at a conference, go, you know, if I'm in their city trying to grab lunch or something like that, because the connection, the depth and richness of the relationship goes so much further, so much faster in an offline world still. And I think that's why we see those sort of super users of social media only feeling so lonely is that they're missing that depth. It's kind of like taking a full like 200 piece orchestra and then trying to compress it down to fit on an MP3. You're going to miss some of the richness and the depth of the sound and relationships work the exact same way. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think it seems to be like as we look at social influencers and brands that are really starting to get out in in a mainstream public now uh, and into into media and, and garner large followings, it seems to be the people who predominantly are able to translate social media followings into in person. You know, Gary Vaynerchuk is somebody that, that I yep. think has done that so incredibly well. Like I brought him out to Vancouver to do an event last year, and you know he. It's incredible to see how passionate he is about connecting with people in person. Like the guy, you know, he was he was sick, he was jet lagged, and he just gave so much extra time, effort, and energy to make sure that he was connecting with people, signing, answering questions, like doing you know uh, impromptu Q and As. And it's that type of connection that really helps people feel, uh, you know, connected to the, the sort of online social platform. So do you think that the the future of, I guess, social influencers or, or people that have solid networks are really just the people who are able to put good content out there, but are able to maximize that capital in person? Oh, absolutely. Right. And I see it. You see it more often in some of the modern influencers, right? Tom Bilyeu, who is an offline buddy of mine, but he'll do the same thing, right? He'll go and give a talk and he will stay until every single person who wants to shake his hand and take a picture you know, has left no matter how long the line is. Jocko Willink is, is the exact same way. I've seen him give like free talks, like TEDx talks where you're not even paid and then still stay to sign a book and take a picture with every single person uh, who wants to, because he know, I think they know that they need it offline. And, he, and you know, even in the small scale, even if you don't want to go be sort of an Instagram entrepreneur, even if you just want to help grow your own career, your own local business, et cetera, it's the same deal. Yeah, you need to be plugged into those communities, creating great content, creating value for those communities, engaging in that conversation. But you need to take them offline at some point because those relationships just seem to last longer. I think online is a great tool for pinging your weak ties and staying in touch with them and for meeting some new folks. But you have to make the effort to meet up in person with people every once in a while, because again, it's like taking that, that huge, amazing symphony and compressing it down to an MP3. A lot gets cut out. 
Yeah, I like that. And I think it sort of forces people to to face their inner demons about actually going and, and connecting with people in real life and and actually, you know, put some skin in the game. Cause it really shows whether or not people are committed to what they say they're committed to. You know, are they really are they really willing to put in the work to have a successful career, to be, you know, have a successful company or business? It it really does come down to that in in a lot of ways. So um, let's shift a little bit to social capital because I think in some ways we're talking about that, but I would love for you to just unpack and maybe define a little bit more uh, for our listeners what social capital actually is. How do we, how do we define that? Yeah, so um, social capital is a term from sociology that there's because it's an academic term, there's like a thousand different definitions. But the, the thing they have all in common, the simplified version of it, is that just like there is real capital assets, uh, you know, fi- actual monetary currency, et cetera, that's real or that's real capital. Then we know that there's human capital, meaning the knowledge, skills, and abilities you have have value to the outside market. Social capital refers to the value to the world that's created when people connect. And we think of social capital in, in two ways. The, the first is that communities that are tightly knit have a rich social capital because things move more efficiently, right? If everyone in your neighborhood all knows and, and likes each other, when you need an egg or a cup of sugar, you can just walk next door and do it. That's a whole lot more efficient than having to drive all the way to a supermarket and get it and pay money and all of that kind of stuff. So so in a, from a societal level, there's values that are created. On an individual level, there's value that's created too. Your The network that you exist in has the ability to to create real capital in it, right? So the, all of those people that say phrases like your network is your net worth, there's actually some truth to that because of this sort of social capital principle. The other thing that I think is important to stress on an individual level is that if it's capital, it usually tends to follow an investment principle, meaning that it's not immediately extractable. You have to sort of grow it over time slowly. You can't just like start sending out a bunch of LinkedIn requests to somebody and then the next day try and withdraw a million dollars worth of social capital. It doesn't work that way. It's like a portfolio. You've got to build it up over time. And usually if you pay attention to that first piece, the entire network, what they need and how you can grow and cultivate that kind of community, right? Then when you need to actually withdraw that value, you can. Now that's a very different thing, by the way, than just trying to be a social influencer and have lots of people know who you are. The people that build the biggest social capital, the people that create a community and serve that community to create value for everybody who's in there and then make periodic withdrawals from that when they need to extract some value. Okay, cool. So, I mean, that gives me some good insight into to sort of like where to navigate this. But it's, I mean, it's interesting because you know you're saying that if it really is a, a true capital, which it you know definitely sounds like it is, then then there's there's an investment piece and there's a withdrawal piece. So, can we look at those individually and and sort of talk about from your perspective how we can leverage our networks to invest in our social capital, and then and then secondarily, how do how do we start to withdraw? Uh, from a you know an optimized way where we can start to understand where the limits are because I think that we've all experienced those people who we you know maybe we classify them as, as takers or you know the people that are like the leeches that they only take they only sort of are trying to withdraw from the social capital and it, and it seems draining so uh, let's just start with the investment side how do we start to give back into our network in a very intentional way and and build up that social capital. 
Yeah. So the, I mean, the single best thing that you can do to create value for that whole sort of network is to, it's Metcalf's law. The more people in that network that are connected to each other, the more valuable it is. So it is connecting, taking the responsibility to connect people who don't know each other, but you're the Kevin Bacon for, right? That, that you're the, the linchpin between to beginning to connect those people. Now, not all bridges that you can build are made equally, right? If you have two friends that are actually both hang out with you all of the time and they're very, very similar and you connect them to each other, not as much value is made because of that redundancy thing as other connections that you could make. If you, if you look at a network as a three-dimensional thing, you have the lines and circles and kind of looks like a spider web type thing that we all visualize. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, just do a Google image and search for the word network and you'll see what I'm talking about. But all of them also work in like clusters. There's nooks and crannies. There's self-similar people that all kind of cluster together. And it turns out the most valuable bridges are the ones that go over the biggest gaps. In sociology terms, we call these structural holes. The structural holes are the natural gaps that develop as people gravitate towards self-similar people. And you unlock a ton of value when you serve as the bridge between those two communities, when you connect uh, those two gaps, when you, that's, again, the technical term is when you broker between two structural holes. So when you're connecting people who are, are different from each other or not different from each other, just like that they always disagree all the time, but just do different things, right? you unlock a tremendous amount of value. I'll give you an example because um, it's always sort of a weird concept. One of the people we talk about in Friend of a Friend is Jane McGonigal, who is not a man, it's Jane McGonigal. She's, but she is, um, she had a, she's a game designer. She designs video games. So, you know, she has a skill that a lot of men take advantage of. She's a video game designer. And she suffered a concussion a number of years ago. And in trying to sort of get better, one of the things she did is I'm going to design a game. I'm going to actually create like an app, a game that gives me badges and stages and rewards, et cetera, that helps me get better. And she created this game, still played over a million people played it called Super Better, which is about getting better. Now you could do that. That's great. But the thing that she, the sort of the ace in her sleeve of why this all worked is that she has a sister who's a psychologist. And she then began to get connected to the mental health and psychology communities. And she creates this game in line with a lot of these medical principles. Now, if you just ran up to a doctor and said, you know, Hey, I'm going to make a game that's going to get your brain trauma patients better faster. They would look at you like you're crazy because they have know nothing about sort of that video game community. But it turns out that because she sort of stood in that gap and connected these two communities, she created a tremendous amount of value for both communities by connecting them. And then, you know, things have worked out pretty well for her as, as well between books and speaking and her video game design career and, and the app is still being used and downloaded. Things worked out pretty well. So she's been able to take advantage of that value that she created as well. Very cool. So in, in many ways, what I'm hearing and just kind of tying back to what you were talking before, uh, it, it's about looking at our network, looking at the people in our network who are those like weaker or former contacts that we can then start to reach out to and, and we can be proactive in looking for ways that we can give back to them or support their network and support whatever they're focused in on in their lives as a means to develop that, that social capital and sort of become like the linchpin that's, that's, uh, that's providing value for our own network. Exactly. And, and we have a tendency to sort of do the opposite, right? We have a tendency to try and get to know as many people inside of our little niche and in industry or people who are further along in their career, but it's the same career that we're on because we feel like those are going to be the most valuable. 
connections. And that's true if you have no connections, but as you start to grow a few of them, additional ones become redundant. And what you need to be doing is connecting to people who are more different than you who are in different careers, because that'll unlock opportunities for more creative and innovative ideas and, and just career opportunities you would have never thought if you were just focused on your little cluster. And so that spills over into uh, capital for you, into, into value for you, because you try to be that valuable connector of other mm. communities. What about, what about people that we perceive to be sort of further along in uh, in their network, in their connection, in their career is sort of elevated up the social hierarchy. So the people that we perceive to be quite a bit up the ladder for from us, what I've noticed is a lot of people want advice from them and come from this place of I need to get something from them unintentionally, even if they're you know trying to give something to them. Um, the, how do, how do people start to connect with people that? are, you know, further along in the career, more established, um, you know, have a sort of uh, a more social weight and, and, and not, not tenure, but they have a, they have more social weight to them. How do they start to add value to people like that? So uh, a, a couple of things here. W one is that those people, it's great to have those people in your life and you need a few of them, but you probably need less than you think because a lot of the advice is going to be redundant and a lot of the connections are going to be redundant. But the other is that we, we have a tendency to get sort of intimidated by that. They're further along in the career, they're more successful, et cetera. But again, keep in mind structural holes, like the way that we provide value isn't by, you know, oh, I'll, I'll work for you for free, right? Or I'll, I'll, you know, I'll do this thing in order to be mentored by you, et cetera. If that thing is in the same domain that they're good at, your best opportunity is to provide value to people who are further along in the career that you want to travel is probably to offer them something that doesn't involve that career, but is some other skill. Right. So, so I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, and it's a more local one. So for the last uh, 10 or 11 years, I've done uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, right? Which is, I started it before it was cool. I mean, it was starting to be cool, but then because the UFC exploded, now like everybody has this sort of moderate interest in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Some of my, uh, some of my more accomplished uh, author friends, social influencer friends, entrepreneur friends, et cetera, are in it. And I can't provide them all that much value. I'm trying to grow an author career, but I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not at the Dan Pink, Malcolm Gladwell, Heath Brothers level yet, but I'm better than a lot of those people at jujitsu. And so I can provide uh, all sorts of information that's of value to them that comes from that domain because they now I've noticed they're interested in it, et cetera. Now, I actually have no idea if Dan or Gladwell or the Heaths are doing jujitsu, but it, it, I do know a couple of people who I don't want to out as being terrible at jujitsu, so I won't name their names. But it's been the way that I've provided value to them because it comes from somewhere else. I'm using value from another domain that they happen to have an interest in to better connect them to that domain and learn more about it. There's a way better opportunity because you're more experienced in that domain than they are. And then that crosses over when they begin to offer information to you from the domain that you were looking for to begin with. Got it. Got it. That's brilliant. So look for the gaps that you can provide value in that may, they not they might not be sort of like leaders or experts in already and they could use support in. Exactly. And, and organizations are starting to notice this and do what they call reverse mentoring. So they'll do it in generations, right, where the older, more experienced person will mentor the younger person on all of the industry stuff. But the younger person knows technology better or knows how to um, how to keep track of far more people more because of, the, of it. And so they're mentoring them on skills that are newer because of the age that we live in that they don't have. And so you have this two way flow of information. You want to do the exact same thing. That two way flow of information only works if it's coming from multiple domains. Makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So in, in terms of 
what's next for us in terms of how we can actually uh, start to develop closer friendships. I'm interested in this as well, because I think this is something that, you know, again, a lot of guys sometimes struggle with. I've noticed I even put a recent poll up on we've got a community of like 3,500 plus guys uh, on Facebook. And I put a, a, a poll up asking guys, you know, what's the biggest challenge that you face when building connections with other men? And it was interesting because I don't think I've ever had so many guys reply with the different challenges that they face when it comes to building new social connections. So do you have any insight in terms of when we do first connect with people, that sort of first meeting, whether it's, you know, at a networking event or just at an event in general, or we're, you know, we're meeting through somebody's friends, how do we start to connect with other people to build that personal professional relationship? Yeah, so in, in Friend of a Friend, we talk about this uh, principle called multiplexity, which is a fancy term from network science that basically describes when the same two people have more than one reason for their connection. So uh, if you only know somebody in one context, let's say you work together, that's what we call a uniplex tie. If you know them in multiple, so we work together, but also our kids go to the same you know elementary school and we see each other at, at events, that's two, that's a multiplex tie, right? And the research shows that um, we build deeper relationships faster with people that we have multiplex ties to. So the lesson there is in seeking is seek out more of that sort of multiplex tie. Now we don't do this. Men are especially bad at this. We default to a lot of times the work domain. And so we ask when we meet somebody for the first time, I mean, I'll ask you what, when we meet someone for the first time, what's the most frequent question people ask? Oh, all the time. What do you do? What do you do? So what do you do? What do you do? Which is essentially a signal that like, let's have a one way uniplex only work related conversation, right? We don't ask them, you know, where are you from? What are your hobbies? Right? Where did you grow up? You know, what kind of tell me about your family? Who's your favorite superhero? Like all of these are, are questions that have to do with sort of the multifaceted dimensions of a person. And all of them are opportunities to connect on another level other than work. But, you know, we default to that, what do you do question, which keeps it in one lane. And then when, you know, we, a lot of people, when they find out like, oh, I don't have anything to offer in this domain, we just like, now we've got to figure out how to awkwardly end the conversation. Like, no, you don't. You need to explore the other dimensions of someone. People are, uh, I mean, people are a bit like gemstones, like diamonds, right? If you've ever seen a, a woman who's, you have a fiance, right? What do they do? They look at the ring all the time, right? Like, you constantly turn over a diamond ring to look at it from lots of different angles to, and you can't appreciate it from a two-dimensional thing. Humans are the same way. We are multifaceted and you kind of need to look at it from lots of different angles to appreciate the complexity. And when you do that, you will build more connections to them. And the more context for connections you have, the deeper the relationship, the stronger and the faster you'll make it. Mm, yeah, really, really good. I mean, it, it's interesting because as you were, def you know, sort of describing that, uh, what came to mind was, you know, a friend of mine who is incredibly, incredibly successful in, in so many ways financially and in business. And it's interesting to observe him when he's out in, out in public and in new spaces. He almost always refuses to talk about work. So when people, when people ask him, you know, what do you do for work? He'll, he'll give a very like short five word answer that's just sort of closed off. But if they talk to him about something else, he's much more open to actually having that conversation. And so it seems like more and more people don't want to talk about the things that they do all the time, especially when they're in that limelight and they're already successful. It's not generally the path that they want to go down. So by being able to come at it from a very different perspective, it sounds like uh, it, it's, it's creating the access point 
for us to actually build a, a more genuine connection, a more intimate with connection with other people. Right. And and you can trust this is something that's not going to change over time. So the majority of other people like like this is an awesome show and you built an amazing community. But the majority of men in the universe are not listening to this. So they're still going to default to asking, what do you do? So you can still trust that at some point, the conversation with a new person is going to migrate back to work. But they can also give you the freedom to explore those other domains, trusting that I'm, I'm going to explore the work domain eventually. But let me ask these questions first before the conversation naturally gets pulled back to that. Right. So you can deliberately avoid that question, just like your friend. Like you might even be a little annoyed when people start asking the work question because you're trying to explore other domains. But trust me, the conversation will come back to that. So if, if you're worried about not asking that question, because then you might not learn what they do for work. Trust me, they're going to tell you at some point. The difference is now we're going to learn about them from multiple dimensions, which is a way better way to get to know someone, build a deep relationship with them. Mm, awesome. Awesome. Well, listen, man, we're, we're running out of time here. And uh, I wanted to definitely uh, give a shout out to, to your new book that's going to be coming out. It's May 1st, right? That it's launching? Yeah, May 1st. Awesome. Which is also my anniversary. No way. Which is kind of cool. How long? Yeah. Uh, it, that will be 13 years. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It took me, it took me a while for that. Not because I don't remember my anniversary or the year I got married. I don't remember what year it is. And so doing the math on that was hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, is, is your partner okay with you, uh, launching a book on the same day as the anniversary? Yeah. I mean, I, she, she's coming with me. I, I actually had a speaking engagement that whole sort of first day, but I think we'll, we'll finally be able to at least grab a dinner together or something like that. But she's, so she's totally okay with that. What she's not okay with doing is that I often say that she has two kids and I have five because uh, I have three books. She's definitely not okay with me saying that, <laughs> um, <laughs> but the actual book launch thing. Yeah. She's fine with that. Amazing. Amazing. So uh, for everybody that's listening out there, if you enjoyed this conversation, you dive deeper, check out Friend of a Friend. Uh, you can pre-order it now. The The subtitle is Understanding the Hidden Networks That Can Transform Your Life and Career. Uh, sounds like it's going to be an absolutely incredible book, David. So thank you so much for coming on the show. And my last question, just a quick bonus question, because I know you're going to jump off, is how can couples leverage their networks and start to build uh, build more sort of cross-sectional networks? Because it seems like as soon as you merge into a relationship, it all of a sudden opens up this whole other subset of, of connections that you didn't have before. So is, is there a quote unquote right and a wrong way to do that? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say that the principle of multiplexity still sort of tends to apply, right? One of the things that's weird about couples is then you start spending a disproportionate amount of time with just the couple friends, right? And, but you actually need to be getting to know your spouse or partners, you know, individual friends too. You need to be friends with them. They need to be friends with yours. Uh, the tendency rather than like in multiplexity where we always talk about work, the tendency a lot of times is to just gravitate towards other coupled out relationships and spend all of our time there. And we're cutting ourselves off from a huge part of the network by not like knowing, liking, respecting, and trusting our spouse or partners, solo friends as well, who sometimes are couples that we just don't want to hang out with, but that's a whole other monologue. But getting to know those other people that are brought into that relationship, because you're exactly right. Once that pair is made, that sort of two networks colliding, that's creating this kind of super network. And there's a huge amount of not opportunity, you know, I don't want to sound instrumental and opportunistic, like value social capital thing, although that's true, but also just a huge amount of value to benefit from having more people that you know, and can speak in your life and influence it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, because like you said, it's it, you, 
it's such a it's such a fine line to walk between being opportunistic and actually just acknowledging and labeling the fact that that it is you are creating this sort of super network and that there's going to be inherent value for both parties in it and and being able to share those i guess resources between one another can be incredibly important so listen david thank you so much for being on the man talks podcast i appreciate having you on the show Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. I could, I could talk about this stuff forever. And, and I love the applications and insights, especially for men that you drew out. So thank you so much for that. Of course, man. Well, listen, when I start doing the two hour uh, Joe Rogan video style live streaming YouTube, uh, <laughs> YouTube style conversations, you'll have to come back on the show and we'll have uh, we'll have a little bit more in depth and talk about some of your TED Talks and whatnot, because you have done some incredible work. So thanks for being on the show for everybody that is out there uh, listening, head on over to David's website, davidburkus.com. It's B-U-R-K-U-S.com. Uh, you can check out all of his books there, the work that he's doing. Uh, he's doing some really incredible work, his TED Talks that he's done. Uh, and don't forget to head on over to Apple Music or Spotify. You can check us out there. Uh, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review and a rating. It goes a long way. And man it forward. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, share it with just one person. Uh, it goes a very long way to getting us into the ears and onto the phones of other people. And until next week, uh, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.